0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Bright and early on a Monday morning, August the 28th, 2023. Uh, We're getting towards the end of the summer. I'm not sure when summer is officially ending, but I think for many people, the Summer of 2023 can't end early enough, given all the various climate crisis, the heat, the rain, the fires. Uh, there's an increasingly apocalyptic quality to the nature of life in the summer of 2023 all around the globe, certainly here in California, and I know also in, in Europe and most of the rest of the world. Uh, last week, we had the uh, the writer and podcaster Anya Kamenets on the show talking about what she called the compounding crises of the modern age, and she uses the term polycrisis, uh, which is one that's been popularized uh, popularized by, of all people, the World Economic Forum at Davos. A lot of people blame them for this crisis. Uh, It's a concept that I think was invented by uh, Adam Tooze, the Columbia University economist who's been on the show before. Certainly the idea of the polycrisis, of a series of, crises, economic, diplomatic, political, and above all else, environmental is one that's increasingly, so to speak, catching fire. My guest today um, has a lot of thoughts on this. Simon Sharp um, was a civil servant in the UK. Now he works for a number of different think tanks. And he's the author of a very important book, I think, about Uh, the crisis maybe we call it the polycrisis five times faster rethinking the science economics and diplomacy of climate change so it approaches this in a polycritical kind of way Uh, the book has been shortlisted for the uh, uh for the um ft book of the year um and i'm thrilled that simon is joining us from whetstone in north london uh Simon, do you buy this idea of the polycrisis? Is the environment the heart of it, or is it just one piece
1: yeah, I think that's a reasonable uh word to use. I mean my own focus is very much on climate change, and that on its own is worrying enough, I think to to be reasonably thought of as a civilization threatening crisis. And that's even before you start looking at the other massive environmental crisis, which is loss of biodiversity. Um, and then the other author you mentioned talking about the geopolitical crises on top of it. That's not my field, but I, I think we can all see there's a lot to be worried about there too.
0: But your book focuses on three areas on, uh, on science of this crisis on economics and on diplomacy how, how, how do they all connect are they inevitably um, organically connected or are they separate existing in silos that often people don't connect
1: well the three one one way the three are connected i think is that in each of them there are real problems with what we're doing in relation to climate change which are under-recognized. You know, the, the things that are well-recognized are that emissions are still going up when they need to be going down and that oil companies are still making massive profits and the vested interests influence policy and all that kind of thing. People are very aware with those of those aspects of the problem. People are much less well aware of what I've called the problems with the invisible infrastructure of climate change, the ideas and the institutions that influence what we do. And I argue that in science, we're doing prediction when we should be doing risk assessment. In economics, we are thinking about the economy in completely the wrong way. And as a result, giving the wrong kind of advice to governments making policy on this issue. And in diplomacy, we've organized our activities in a way that makes the job about as difficult as it possibly could be so in each of those areas there are ways i think we can change what we're doing change our ideas and change our institutions and organize our efforts far more effectively so that we could make much faster progress in solving the problem what i want to get
0: to the fixes, because that's the core of your book but before we get there simon It still seems to me, I've had so many guests on the show all giving me different takes on where we're at, counting down perhaps the minutes to midnight. In your view, in August 2023, what is the crisis? Is it existential? Um, And and where exactly are we in
1: terms of climate change? Well whether it's existential or not, I, I think the important thing is to be honest and say that we don't know, but it is extremely worrying. The The thing that for me uh, that makes me feel in my gut that this is really dangerous is when you look at the um, 800,000 year record of temperatures that you get from the ice cores extracted from Antarctica, then you see that over most of that time the world's temperature has fluctuated in in quite a volatile way, plus or minus five degrees, um, between situations where you've got ice sheets three kilometers thick over North America and Northern Europe, uh, to situations where the world's far, far warmer than it is now. That instability is actually quite typical of the Earth's climate. The thing that has been atypical, deeply unusual, is the period of 10,000 years of climate stability, which just happens to have been the period in which we've grown a human civilization. So Mm. everything that we have is highly attuned to this current climate. In the past, tiny little nudges have sent the system into a completely different state. And right now, we're not giving it a tiny little nudge. We're giving it a great big whack with a giant sledgehammer. And we're waiting to see what's going to happen. So I think we, we have every reason to be extremely worried and you ask well, where are we in in this year now well it, you know if you look at this one year there's a good chance it's going to be the hottest year we've experienced and recorded uh, you know since we started measuring these things and that's not surprising because we're on an upward trend and there are fluctuations around the trend and this being an El Nino year it's one where we spike upwards and we don't spike downwards but if we zoom out a little bit then I'd say it's roughly 30 years since the world since climate change became a fairly mainstream thing in politics and diplomacy and science and technology and you can look at the experience of that 30 years and say we've been failing terribly in the fact that emissions have still gone up by a huge amount and they're still going up or you can look with a slightly more optimistic slant and say Well, we've made huge progress developing some of the clean technologies in that time, the solar, the wind, the batteries, and so on. And actually, uh, those things are growing exponentially, which may mean we're in a slightly better position than it looks at first glance. So I'm sure we can get more into reasons for optimism and pessimism. But we're certainly at a point where, in fact, as I've said in the title of my book, if if we want to meet the climate targets that we've all set ourselves, that the world's agreed limit warming to 1.5 degrees, then we actually need to decarbonize the world economy roughly five times faster this decade than we've done over the last two decades. So any way you look at it, there's a huge acceleration that's required. Five times faster, five,
0: five times faster is the title of your book, of course. It's very daunting. I wonder, Simon, whether we also need to rethink how we calibrate these issues another of the books on um, the FT long list for business book of the year is Co- cobalt Red, a, a book about the slave conditions of working Congo to mine uh, cobalt which is the, the seems one of the, the, the key ingredients both in batteries and in smartphones do we have to acknowledge that we're never going to come to a fix here that if if we are to through through solar, for example, or through batteries, if we are to address some of these crises, that nothing's ever going to be perfect.
1: Yeah. Um, And not in a way that is being fatalistic about any particular problem, but I think in a way that acknowledges that with every solution to a problem, uh, every solution that we create creates its own new problems that we have to go and solve. Um, I think that's a natural pattern of things. And so people are absolutely right to raise concerns about the human rights conditions and the local environmental pollution associated with the the metals that we need for batteries and solar panels and so on. Um, Those are problems that should be addressed. They're not reasons, I don't think, to say we we shouldn't have batteries, we shouldn't have electric vehicles, we shouldn't have solar panels. Um, when you compare the quantity of material that you have to dig out of the ground in a clean economy, it's actually far less than the quantity of material you have to dig out of the ground to keep a fossil fuel economy going. So I I wouldn't want for one second to minimize those kind of problems, but we should face up to them and try and solve them at the same time as trying to rapidly deploy the clean technologies that we have and keep innovating to make them better. Simon, you
0: suggested that over the last 30 years we haven't done a great job uh, in terms of addressing this issue. Things are compounding. Around 30 years ago, there was a very influential book came out um, called Future Shock by Alvin Turfler, which talked about the role of speed in our modern economy. It was mainly focused, I think, on communications technology, but I wonder whether the role of speed and perhaps in in terms of your new book, The uh, Five Times Faster, speed is is central both in fixes and problems, isn't it? Everything is simply speeding up, for
1: better or worse. Well, when you have a, a technology transition, a change in technology, then what often happens is it looks very slow to begin with. And then at some later point, it suddenly seems to be very fast. And incumbents can be caught out by that. You know, one of the famous example is Kodak, which used to be Mm. huge uh, making cameras and film. And it seemed very dominant. And those electronic cameras seem like a nice novelty, but they're very expensive and not very reliable. And suddenly one day they're all over the place and Kodak's gone bust. And actually that's, that's not, uh, an unusual example, that is the usual way of things. So given that what we need to do for climate change is have rapid technology transitions in big parts of the global economy, we should be utterly focused on it, understanding how those work and making them happen really quickly. The the interesting thing is we have a a form of economics where time almost doesn't exist. one of the world's most famous climate change economists is a guy called Nick Stern. And he he wrote a paper called Public Economics as if Time Matters. And you've got to think that's a very strange title for a paper. Of, of course, time matters. Why would he write a paper and call it that? And the reason is we actually have a form of economics where time barely exists. You treat it as if the economy is static and
0: not changing. No, that, you don't treat time as a commodity in 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 the economic equation
1: no and and you don't value speed, so we're really ignorant of dynamics and you know when you uh when you work with systems thinking, then you can trust two very different forms of dynamic you have reinforcing feedbacks that are self amplifying processes. And you have balancing feedbacks, which are self-limiting processes. And if you're trying to change something and change it quickly, then you definitely want to get some of those reinforcing feedbacks on your side and strengthen them. Now, there's, the standard economics that we have uh, ignores these dynamics. They're, they're not even part of its vocabulary, whereas they ought to be absolutely central to what we're trying to do and there is a new school of
0: economics sort of donut economics which is attempting to, to to rethink this we've had a number of shows about that too
1: yeah there's there's more and more uh there's there's what you could very reasonably call a paradigm shift in economics which is beginning to take place and it's moving away from the idea that the economy is a system in equilibrium uh which My Oxford English Dictionary of Economics defines as a situation in which nobody has any reason to change their actions so that the status quo can continue. Uh, Now, that's a very weird idea when you come to think about it. If you're a business, when have you ever faced a situation where you had no reason at all to change your actions? Um, that's, That's an assumption that is there, not because anybody ever observed the economy and saw that that's how it was working, it's there because it made some math equations easy to solve during the 1870s. And that's not really a very good reason to keep it. What we're moving to is an understanding of the economy as a dynamic system, a complex adaptive system. One where it's a poly system. A different... I mean, if we
0: have a poly crisis, then the fix needs
1: to also be poly in one way or the other. Well, there's a difference between understanding how something works and deciding what you should do. And of course, those those two things are very closely related. But first, you have to try and understand how something works. And I I often say the way we've been understanding the economy is imagine if you were a weather forecaster and you had a weather model that could only predict a calm and sunny day. Uh, That's what it would tell you it would be every day. It wouldn't have much chance of predicting a thunderstorm. And that's a bit what our understanding of it is. And relying on weathermen, I'm not sure, is smart.
0: We don't need, to, to quote a famous song, we don't need a weatherman to tell us which way the wind blows these days. The, the subtitle of your book is Rethinking the Science, Economics, and Diplomacy of Climate Change. In terms of speed, and I want to come to speed after the break, um, do we need to speed up our thinking in itself, Simon, or do we need to perhaps slow it down? <laughs>
1: Neither, we just need to get it right. I think the, the worst thing to do would be to think we're doing everything the right way and we just need to try harder and, and speed it up. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, my, my local coffee shop has a nice sign on the wall saying, uh, you know, coffee helps you do stupid things faster and with more energy. Uh, that's what we're at risk of doing. And I, I think we have to act more intelligently instead. We have to understand how we can focus our efforts so that we get much faster progress for the same amount of political will and for the same amount of social concern without imagining that we're going to have much better political leaders or or necessarily a, a huge moral revolution where we all become better people at some point within the next five years.
0: That I don't think... I don't think that's going to happen, Simon. Um, We are talking with Simon Sharp, the author of Five Times Faster, Rethinking the Science, Economics and Diplomacy of Climate Change. It's been long listed for the Financial Times Book of the Year. Uh, I'm going to take a short break now. Just remind uh, viewers and listeners of our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, which is an excellent new publication. Um, I'm going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with Simon Sharp talking more concretely about how indeed we can rethink science, economics and diplomacy uh, in, in, in the age of our crisis of climate change. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 30 seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Check out more at libertiesjournal.com to subscribe. We are talking with uh, Simon Sharp, the author of Five Times Faster: uh, Rethinking the Science, Economics, and Diplomacy of Climate Change. Simon, let's get into some details. Let's let's get to the. Let's begin with rethinking science. You touched on this at the beginning, but how do we need to rethink it in our age of
1: the crisis of climate change? Yeah, well, I've got to be uh, clear that I'm not saying we should rethink all of it. Um, the only reason we know what we do about climate change is thanks to scientists um, uh, doing an amazing amount of good work. The problem is that a great deal of the climate science and the climate information that is produced and communicated to governments is done in the form of prediction. Whereas something that we really need is risk assessment. The difference between the two is prediction tells you first what's most likely to happen And then second, it it looks at whether that really matters to anything you care about. Risk assessment looks at those things the opposite way around. It, It asks first, what's the worst that could happen in relation to things we care about? And then second, how likely is that to happen? And if you're a government figuring out, do we do anything on climate change? How much do we do? You're having to weigh that up against many different competing priorities and concerns. And so having a good risk assessment, it won't be enough necessarily to make you respond in a way that's proportionate to that threat. But it's surely necessary. If you don't think there's a massive risk there, then there's no reason why you would have a strong response, given all the political difficulties there will be. So we've got to have good risk assessment. And the problem when you have prediction is you don't know what's the worst that could happen. And the most likely thing might not be something that strikes you as necessarily all that bad. So one example I give is with sea level rise. Uh, very often the, the thing that is foremost in these reports for policymakers is a prediction saying something like by the end of this century there'll be around 50 centimeters to 100 centimeters of global sea level rise. Now you might think as a policymaker, well, okay, that, that doesn't sound great, but I expect we can live with it. We can probably pay our way out of it. Whereas if you're if you're in London, it's actually not that far from the coast. We have the River Thames going through. And if you want a risk assessment, you might ask what's the worst that could happen for London? And an answer could be, well, actually, there's a limit to our ability to adapt and protect the city against sea level rise. And one study has been done, it looked at this, and it said probably the limit is about five meters of global sea level rise. That's the point at which you'd have to build a wall around central London and pump the River Thames over the top. And at that point, it would be so difficult, expensive, and the residual risk would be so high, you probably wouldn't bother, you'd move your capital to Birmingham or somewhere instead. And God forbid, ask, God forbid, God forbid. Exactly, exactly, God forbid. And then you'd ask... "Well, There are people in Birmingham might not be unhappy. Well, I, I was near there in the last few days and, and got a good laugh on that point. But But the serious thing is, you know, you then look at, well, having established that's the worst that could happen, how likely is that? And you find in a worst-case scenario for global sea level rise, that could happen as early as the year 2150, That's really not all that far away for a city like London that has a 2,000-year history. That's really quite shocking. And most people in our government, in our political system, don't know that because that's not the sort of thing that's been the focus of... So so
0: scientists need to learn to communicate, to tell their stories. We've had a number of shows on telling the stories of the environment. One of the most controversial aspects of all this, and again, uh, Simon, I certainly don't need to tell you this, is the role of private enterprise uh, we've had a number of people on the show like lucas Joppo, who was the chief sustainability officer at microsoft who believed that private corporations have a role uh bob o- bob keith also believes that he runs a, a group of corporations he has a new book out climate nomics and there are critics of contemporary capitalism like tim jackson who have been on the show who simply say that capitalism and fixing this crisis are incompatible. Where do you stand when it comes to the economics? Can we address climate change within uh, the capitalist system? Does capitalist economics work?
1: I think we can address it. Um, I mean, capitalism, I'm sure lots of people define it in different ways, but, but let me work with the way I understand it. Um, Look, first thing to say is there's a lot that businesses can do if businesses want to help. They can innovate in new solutions and they can use their buying power to help create markets for new technologies. And they can use their lobbying power if they want to, to push governments in the right kind of direction. So there's a lot that businesses can do. But the second thing I want to say is they can't do it all on their own. This is what we have governments for to solve global problems social problems and government has enormous power through investment through regulation and through tax to bring about the the technology transitions of the kind i described that is absolutely within government's power what you see happening um, when we get it right is not a choice between the public or the private sector but the right kind of interaction between the two so a, a good example is you look at what's happening now in road transport there's a massive shift underway from petrol and diesel cars towards electric vehicles. And that's not happening by accident. It's happening because governments first uh, used public investment in research and development of electric vehicle batteries and drivetrains and, and all the other bits and pieces. Then they began to subsidize them and then they began to regulate. And the places where this transition is furthest ahead the european union china california these are the places where they've used strong regulatory policy to say if you're going to sell a car into this huge market then it has to meet these kind of regulatory standards either energy efficiency standards or carbon efficiency standards or even increasingly now saying this proportion of your car sales must be zero emission that that is a public policy that forces the players in in the private sector to shift their investment from the old technology to the new, to shift the focus of their competition from the old technology to the new. So we're absolutely using private sector innovation, we're using competition, but we're using public policy to direct it in a direction that's useful for the public good. You mentioned
0: California, which is in some ways splitting itself off from the rest of America when it comes to policy. The the third piece of your book is diplomacy politics in other words really um obviously enormously controversial the republican party in the u.s in particular still seems to be large parts of it deeply skeptical of the even the idea of a climate crisis um we've done a number of shows on the politics of all this we had one guest chris goodall um whose book um what we need to do now in some way similar to yours talks about transforming this into a centrist issue taking the politics out and in the united states in particular people associate the crisis with the left what's your take on this on the the diplomatic political angle of climate change
1: well the politics of it in every country are different um and in the us i think there's you know there's extreme polarization um it It's different in every country. The crucial thing for the diplomacy, I think, is not to see each country as just one entity with one set of interests. You have to understand that each country is a complex beast with many competing interests. And naturally, in these technology transitions that we need to get emissions out of the global economy, in regard to each of those transitions, there will be people battling for it and against it in every country. And so the role of climate change diplomacy should be to try to make it easy for those who are on the side of making the transition happen, make it easier for them to succeed. And I argue that so far we haven't done a very good job of that. We've structured diplomacy in a way that is far too broad. It's been for the last 30 years, it's really been centrally focused on peer pressure around countries, economy wide, emissions targets. And there's almost nothing at stake there. There's no interest brought into the into play except for the interest in avoiding dangerous climate change. And we've seen that that's not a strong enough interest to make diplomacy effective. What you find with diplomacy generally is to make it useful, you have to break it down to a, a manageable scope. I think the best example of this from a different field is just to think about war and peace. When is diplomacy uh, aimed at conflict resolution ever helpful? It's not when you come up with a global legally binding treaty that says we'll never go to war ever, ever again, which we all tried to do in 1928. It was called the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Yeah, we've heard that one before, Simon. Exactly. Um, Whereas, you know, Northern Ireland peace treaty, reasonably successful. Many other examples of place-specific, problem-specific peace treaties—they've been successful. So, for climate change to make it manageable, you've got to break it down to the different emitting sectors. Recognize that the power sector is completely different from buildings, and steel is different from shipping. Agriculture is different from aviation. Each of those is a different kind of problem, uh, different technologies, different kind of international connections different countries that are most influential once you start breaking it down like that you see in any of these sectors you can have an agreement that speaks to different interests interest in energy security or in cheap energy um you know in interest in food security interest in low-cost transport these are the different kinds of things you bring onto the table when you have sector-specific agreements so I'm arguing that's that's very much where we need to shift our focus.
0: Simon, to end, uh, you argue in the book that um, science is pulling its punches, diplomacy is picking the wrong battles, and economics has been fighting for the other side. To, to end, perhaps you might note one thing that can be done within the next year or two to address this in each sector, in diplomacy, in science, and in economics, which is doable, realistic, that can get us at least in the right direction in terms of your broader argument in five times faster? And what people who
1: are listening and watching can actually do to help this? Well, I'd say one of the very best things that can be done is use buying power to increase the market for clean technologies. The reason that's so powerful is it's one of the things that sets off the reinforcing feedbacks I was talking about earlier. When you create a market for a new technology, it scales up. You get learning by doing. You get economies of scale. In other words, the more of it you make, the better it becomes and the cheaper it becomes. And more so, cheaper. In other words,
0: get your EV and get solar energy for your house. And, it, and it's a virtuous cycle.
1: So the good thing about buying power, if, if you ask for one thing that can be done, I give that. Because you can do it at the individual level. You can do it at the organizational level. And you can do it at the national level, and public procurement is massively powerful in creating and growing markets for clean technologies. When you get to the diplomacy as well, imagine and, and just to be clear and we all have
0: uh, we have no excuses, we can all do that. People often come up with excuses saying, oh, it won't make any difference, but you're saying it does collectively
1: It does, but I'm also saying that if if you're thinking individually about what can you do. I'm actually not saying it's about eliminating your carbon footprint, because that's an idea that was popular, popularized by an oil company. The most important thing you can do individually is understand what's your own point of leverage. What's the thing that you can change, uh, the systemic change that you can contribute to better than most people can? And that's that's a highly individual thing. But that's what I'd encourage people to think about. And then finally, on the uh, on the science and the diplomacy side, what can be done in the short term? On the science, uh, a very simple thing is to understand uh, in in any different aspect of climate change, what's the worst that could happen and how likely is that? And I think any scientist can do that kind of a study. Um, On the diplomacy, what I'd say is for all of those NGOs out there and anybody that wants to put pressure on governments, challenge them in how they're working with each other. You know, the U.S. might have some great policies on decarbonizing steel, but challenge the U.S. government to say, how is it working with China on that? Because if they're not working together, that global sector is not going to change.